Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey there, welcome to The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas, filling in tonight and super glad to be here as always. The Conversation is actually one of my favorite shows to do here on the network. I have a lot of fun with it. So let's get started because we have two special guests for you today. And first guest is sitting right next to me in the studio, so I really should get right to it. We have Aramie Glass-Blake. You are a congressional candidate in California's District 51. Yes, yes. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, let's get right to it because everyone wants to know, and this is always my first question that I ask congressional candidates, You know, why are you running for Congress? I'm running for Congress because I'm pissed off. Oh. I'm angry. Um, I've been working in the field of juvenile justice for a long time and to constantly see the injustices that happen, not just in my community, but across this nation Mm -hmm. is upsetting. So um, instead of complaining about it, I decided to do something about it. I love that. Let's get into specifics because you mentioned recently putting your body on the line. What Mm -hmm. does that mean to you? So putting your body on the the line is is taking it a step further. Like marches and um, rallies are great. Uh But when you start to disrupt on a level that messes with people's money, um, you begin to to shift the conversation. But not only that, you begin to actually create change. For example, last year when we were in the same situation in regards to children being separated from their families, I decided to, with my organization, Generation Justice, to go down to the detention center because my district covers the border. Um, And so we went down to the detention facility and made a makeshift gate and locked ourselves to each other in that gate. And we blocked all the officers from coming in and out for eight hours um, until they came with a SWAT team and everybody um, to, to arrest me. Um, but did you get arrested? I did get arrested. Okay. They thought they could wait me out. No one can wait me out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they eventually got tired, um, brought out a SWAT team, threatened to spray young people, like 16, 15 year olds. Um, and so with like pepper spray, with pepper spray, mm-hmm. um, they had their full military gear, police officers in military gear, which is another problem that I'll talk about later. But um, but they showed up and they threatened to to do that. And I said, you're gonna you're gonna pepper spray 14 and 15 year olds because they're standing up for what's right. You're gonna have to come through me. Mm-hmm. And so I guess some of them had a, a conscience and put that down, but then the, ultimately they came and arrested us, and it was it was a pretty brutal arrest as well. What do you mean? What happened? Um, so in one video you see an officer. So there's an officer on every limb of my body. 
Mm-hmm. And you ultimately see an officer pull my hair. Mm-hmm. And um, God forgive me, but I said, pull my hair one more time, I will F you up. Mm-hmm. Like, And that was my reaction because so many times I see people get brutalized by the police because they can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And that was me saying like, no more. Right. And so um, some other folks got arrested along with us. Um, and ultimately, um, some ladies, some white women put their bodies on the line. Um, someone seen the officers surround me and, and pretty much try to hurt me. And this one white woman, she stepped in and she said, they said, you have three seconds to move away. She said three. And she w- ended up going to jail with me as well. And so um, that's what putting your body on the line. When you see someone hurting, when you see someone in need, what are you willing to do to step up? Um, not just march and rally and yell, but what are you really going to sacrifice to make sure that this changes? And in San Diego, three days later, a federal judge said um, that they had to uh, start the reunification process for those children um, within San Diego to be re- reunified with their with their families. And obviously, this is something that's important to you. It should be important to everybody. But and when planning this protest. You're so I've done a little research about you, and you're mm-hmm. someone who very clearly knew what the outcome would be. Mm-hmm. Um, why were you able to still push forward, knowing what was going to happen to you? Mm-hmm. Because I, I'm okay with whatever it takes mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Like so, for me, um, I use Dr. King and I and I use Malcolm X. So I believe in nonviolence, but mm-hmm. I also believe in self-defense. And and I think right now we're in a state where we have to not just defend ourselves, but defend each other. And for me, it's whatever whatever that looks like. Right. And we're gonna have to step it up, you know, a lot because of who we have in this presidency right now. Let's talk about the voters in your district specifically. Mm-hmm. How do you feel they have been underserved by prior representatives? Right. So right now we have an incumbent right now that is sitting in the congressional seat who just has not showed up for the people. He does not show up. In what way? In any way, in any capacity. So when when we talk about um, the intersectionality of mass incarceration mm-hmm. and um, immigration and private prisons, he took money from private prisons. So. You're showing us with your actions that you're not for us. When you're taking money from the very people who are oppressing and suppressing us, right? And so uh, that's an issue in itself. But when you, when you forget who voted you in and you forget who you represent, um, that's a problem, you know? And so ultimately he, we have Imperial County. So the 51st district, the way it's district out, which is another issue. Oh, right, I, I figured you'd be going there, yeah. <laughs> which, which is another issue, um, is so spread apart. So we have, I, I cover a district that is about an hour and so away. And that is another border area. And when I say when I showed up, they are in complete support of me running for office because they have not been representing right. at all. They they feel neglected. You have um, pollution with the New River and Salt and Sea, and pollution running from um, Mexico into um, into San Diego and in El Centro and Imperial County. Huge issue. People have asthma. People, you know, are are sick. One woman, she developed lung cancer, all of these different things. And he's been sitting in that office and hasn't given a dime of federal money to Salt and Sea or the New River. And so when I showed up, it was just 
a breath of fresh air for them because they just wanted somebody who wanted to be there for right. them. And so um, I'm really excited. We also, you know, our district is unique because we have a place where I'm from is Southeast San Diego. And that is predominantly, was predominantly the, the black um, community. Now it's a mixture of everybody and, you know, we welcome everybody, but it's unique. Um, and we take pride in our community, but we're over-policed in that community. We're not only over-policed, but we have a huge issue with uh, the gang, Cal gang database and gang documentation and the effects that that has on young people. Tell our viewers what the Cal gang database is. So the Cal gang database is a database where um, uh, the state of California you can be documented as a gang member, not even know it. Mm -hmm. So when they did an audit of the Cal Gang database, they had children in that database. Not only did they have children, but they had uh, like one-year-olds. So there were people in that database who could not possibly be a documented gang member. And the criteria to be a documented gang member is if you and I, if you're a gang member mm -hmm. um, and you say you're a gang member, but we're cousins. I can be marked down. Because it's like gang adjacent, gang related. You could have potentially spoken to a gang member at some point. Anything. Live near, right. The criteria is so, I mean, mm -hmm. everybody should really be a doctor. It's a problem with a lot of these gang, with exactly. all of them. Essentially, that's why they're being shut down. Exactly. That's what happened in Illinois. Exactly. And, and somebody by the uh, name of Dr. Weber, who's an assemblywoman, she has been working on that, um, as well as somebody by the name of Genevieve Jones-Wright, who ran for DA in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And so some of the issues that we've been working on around gang documentation is why is it so important for the DA to have gang documentation right. and why is it so important for the police and the reason being is because you can do gang injunctions and gang injunctions um, can give you more time than you would have. So if I commit a crime that's not gang related, I can throw in that you're a gang member, a documented gang member, give you a gang injunction, and now you're a you're, sentence. you're serving, mm -hmm. you know, 30 years as you would have probably been serving five. Right. You know, so um, we have a huge issue, and a lot of folks aren't, you know, gang members, but right. they're related to them, and so we have a huge issue in San, San Diego around discrimination. Um, no, our police, we've had police. Um, involved shootings and unjust shootings, but we have a huge issue in San Diego around police brutality. So they might not kill you, but they'll beat you up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the reasons going back to, to stepping up and putting your body on the line because constantly seeing the injustice, and this comes from somebody who trains the police. Like I'm a restorative justice consultant and a juvenile justice consultant. So I do a lot of trainings with the police. I work within these systems, the same systems that I'm fighting against. Right. So as I was being prosecuted by the DA, I was also sitting on a board with that, that same person that was prosecuted. How did that work out? Well, craziness. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I want to, because we don't have a lot of time left, yeah. but I do want to ask you uh, another question that I think a lot of people are thinking about right now. Trump's racist tweets over the weekend uh -huh. um, upset a lot of people, and we had a bit of a discussion today about what Congress is attempting to do about it. They were mm -hmm. on the floor prepared to vote on a resolution to condemn him. Is that enough, and what do you think? What should be done? Uh, I mean, how obviously it's not enough. Right. But what do you how think many about times that? are we going to condemn somebody? Right. Like, what are you willing, again, y'all, what are we willing to do to step it up and say no more? What would you do? You know, I would start, and I know this is a controversy, you know, I would start the impeachment process. Mm -hmm. and, and really, I'm saying that because even if he wasn't, and I know that we have an election coming up, right. but I think it's important to, to send a message that says, 
you are not untouchable. You know, we will come for you, whatever that looks like, whatever it takes. And so I think right now we have, you know, Pelosi and her folks that are scared of that because if he doesn't get impeached, they still want a Democratic, um, you know, president and, and that could be used, you know, oh, well, he wasn't impeached, so he's still okay. And it's like, no, start the process, let everything come out, let, let all his dirt and baggage come out. And we already see the type of person. He is. Yeah. Um, we already see it. It's right there in our faces. So how much more condemning are you going to do? Step it up. Put your body on the line. Come for him. I think that's a great way to end this. And I'm so sorry we have to wrap it up because I would love to talk to you much more. But Aramy Glass Blake running for Congress in California's District 51. Thank you so Thank much you. for being here. It was great to talk to you. It was you nice as to well. meet you. All right, we'll be right back. I'm like, where's my camera? Right here. Yes. Uh, we'll be right back. There's only one camera in the area. That's just. It's been a long day. Uh, we'll be right back. <laughs> Hey there, welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Brooke Thomas, and I am excited to introduce you to our next guest. Next up right now, coming in live, we have Dr. Celeste Watkins-Hayes, author and professor, but author of Remaking a Life. And this is a pretty powerful book, and I'm excited to talk about it. Good evening. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Good evening, Brooke. Thank you so much. Happy to be with you. Appreciate it. I'm glad to have you here. First, just tell our viewers about your book. What's your book about? So my book is about women living with HIV and the social movement that enabled them to transform their lives. In 2005, I began interviewing women living with HIV in the city of Chicago. And I was struck by the ways in which women were talking to me about what it was like to be diagnosed HIV positive, what it was like to receive what they believed to be a death sentence. But they didn't stay there. They didn't stay in that place emotionally or mentally. In fact, they talked about moving along a trajectory of dying from, to living with, to thriving, Despite. Mm-hmm. And as more and more women talked about this move that they were on and the ways in which they had remade their lives despite living with HIV and despite dealing with a whole host of other challenges in terms of economic and social challenges, I got really curious about what explains that movement. How does one go from behaving and believing as though they have a death sentence to behaving and believing that they as though they can live with and thrive despite a manageable, serious crime? illness like HIV, but also find new ways to confront many of the other challenges that they had been facing. And what I found was that the HIV community offered really powerful lessons for all of us. When we think about how you provide services, how you provide resources, and how you provide support so that people can remake their lives and begin to be get to a place where they can speak truth to power as well, where they can become activists, where they can be change agents. And I was really fascinated by the ways in which the HIV community has brought women in in ways that have been transformative. Really, can you break down some of those ways? Well, many of the women that I worked with, not exclusively, but many Uh of them were dealing with a whole host of challenges. Homelessness, poverty, many were grappling with mental health issues, substance abuse issues. Many had histories of childhood sexual trauma, so very difficult histories. And what I found was that the HIV community was offering four major things. Number one, they were helping women get access to healthcare, helping women to get access to a basic level of 
services for their physical and mental health that proved to be critical. The next thing they were offering was very robust social support. So whether it was through support group meetings, whether it was through case management, whether it was about bringing women together in community to talk about their HIV status and the challenges they were facing. They were allowing women to use their own personal stories to help others and to support each other. So that's the second thing they were doing. The third thing they were doing was giving women resources economically. So whether it was helping them find housing, whether it was helping them find jobs and employment, whether it was helping them get access to government assistance so that they could get back on their feet. The AIDS safety net in Chicago and in many cities across the country has figured out ways to do this well. But the final thing that they were offering was really important, they were offering women in on ramp to political and civic engagement. So women who had been counted out, women who had been told that because of who they are and what they look like, they have nothing to contribute to society. They were giving those women a microphone, a bullhorn in order to tell their stories and to demand more from our leaders. So I talked to women like Gina Brown, who lives in the city of New Orleans. Gina Brown has a history that is very similar to many of the women that I talked to in Chicago. Gina Brown served on President Obama's Advisory Council on HIV AIDS. So I just got very intrigued by how does a social movement, how does a community of support create an environment, create a structure where women can marry that with their own strength and their own resilience and move up the economic ladder, move up the social ladder and become political change agents in critical ways because we definitely need this in our current era. I, so I love that. I, I want to. There's so much I want to ask you about, and I want to break down everything you just said even more. But okay, I'll move on just for a second. I, I think a lot of people are curious is about um, how do you feel our current healthcare system, specifically, also I guess politicians. Um, how do you think they've failed in this support? Well, I think first of all, we are at um, an unfortunate place in our country where we believe that healthcare is something that doesn't necessarily have to be given to all. Mm -hmm. And the idea of healthcare affordability and healthcare access is a point of debate. It's not an agreed upon value in this country. So the very idea that people should have access to care beyond crisis points and emergency rooms is something that's very much up for debate. But what I found in my research was that it was absolutely critical. You can't have a gene Brown, you can't have some of the most positive and productive members of our community who are very, very active in healthcare rights without giving them access for basic substance and to be able to take care of a whole host of challenges that they're facing. So I really think that in this current moment, we can look at the HIV safety net as a model for the Affordable Care Act because it's done that in many ways. It's been a model for the Affordable Care Act. We can look Look at what has been successful in terms of what happens when you're able to give people that basic level of stability in terms of helping them to avoid debt, in terms of helping them to be able to focus on a whole host of other issues and challenges that they need to face, and to be in a position where they're not focusing on the crisis of their health, but they're instead focusing on what they can contribute to their families, to their communities, and to our larger society. So instead of thinking about healthcare as a winner's 
versus losers debate as something that you either have or you don't, whether you're lucky or not, or whether you have been successful or not in our country. Why don't we think of that as a basic resource that we need for all individuals in our society to be able to thrive? I want to talk a little bit more about what inspired you to write this book and why, I guess this is kind of a two-parter. So why did you focus on women? And also, what was it about, I think, the community of women in Chicago that specifically inspired you? Absolutely. One of the things that I wanted to talk about in this book is an example of a social safety net and a support system that works. I think that we often demonize support that is given to low income populations, marginalized populations. And I don't want us to cede that ground. And I want us to be able to point to measurable outcomes and ways in which support systems and safety nets have in fact been very successful. And the HIV safety net has a lot of successes to point to. We're seeing better health outcomes for people living with HIV in states that have robust HIV safety nets versus states that don't. We're seeing better health outcomes in in terms of people who are living in states that expanded Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act versus states who didn't. And we're also seeing these places become hotbeds of really important activism that is speaking truth to power about where we go next in our healthcare system. So in major cities across the country, particularly cities that have strong histories of LGBTQ activism that got very active during the 1980s and the 1990s when AIDS was very much coming into our consciousness. Those cities really built infrastructures that I'm arguing we are absolutely seeing the fruits of 30 plus years later. And I want to point to it as a model for these are systems that are not perfect and certainly can do better but nevertheless have proven results of success. So that's why I wanted to look at Chicago, a city that I think is doing this quite effectively and continues to improve upon what they're doing. The focus on women is for a lot of reasons. Um, I really think that when we think about HIV AIDS, we tend to think about men who are affected, but we can't forget about the women. We can't forget about the women who are a quarter of the people living with HIV in this country, but are over half of the people living with HIV in the world. We have to remember the ways in which women have also been very important activists and contributors and advocates for what we now know as the progress that we've made in fighting the epidemic. So I often get the question, isn't the epidemic over? And we've made progress, but it's not over. And one of the things that we can think about are the ways in which women sometimes get lost in the conversation in terms of what their needs are. And also how they get lost in the histories we tell about the successes that we have enjoyed in the epidemic. I, so I think we have time for one more quick question because I, I just I want to go back really quickly to something that you said. I think we have about a minute left, so I'm going to try to go quickly. I want to go back really quickly to something you said earlier. You mentioned the phrases dying from, living with, and thriving despite. I want you to, as, as quickly as you can, if you can, break down for our viewers those phrases and the importance of that evolution. 
Absolutely. And this applies to not just women living with HIV, but people who are dealing with what I call the injuries of inequality, uh-huh. those big and small wounds to families and personal well being that result from structural inequality and all of the, the results that we see from it. So the notion of dying from to living with to thriving despite is really about thinking about despite those challenges, how can we give people the resources that in such that they can still thrive and they can move beyond those challenges and find new ways to confront those injuries of inequality, new ways to fight back and new ways to create systems and examples of resistance. But it's difficult to do that when you're dying from. It's difficult to do that from when you're dying from HIV, mm-hmm. from poverty, from marginalization, from police brutality. So the question becomes, how do we build support systems for people and safety nets for people so that they can live with and thrive despite those challenges. Dr. Celeste Watkins Hayes, author of Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV and AIDS Confront Inequality. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for writing such an important book. And uh, it was nice to meet you. Oh, I truly thank you. I appreciate it. Good evening. All right. All right, that's it for the conversation tonight. I'm Brooke Thomas, and I will be right back after this break for the post game. If you're a member, right? It's important to be a member of TY2, see that you get all the good stuff. Stay with us.